Blog Talk Radio. I'll put you up along my smile, bring you back down under a while, fill you with life, with a wisp of death, till we're both running, clear, out of breath, till we expire on sins and sighs, on dreams and fears, upon our thighs, we'll bury deep here, counting sheep to rise and shine in our daily grind. Well, I know a gal, she don't take no slack. She drive an old Ford pickup with a pit bull in the back. She got crankcase oil on her tight blue jeans. And her alligator boots smell just like gasoline. Maybe I'm crazy, dump them, run off the track. But good lordy, girl, look sexy in that cowboy Cadillac. A cowboy Cadillac is long and lean. At the clothes, and you'll find you a farmer's limousine. And if you get drunk, you can't sleep in the back of that long bed, flat, black, three quarter ton cowboy Cadillac. Now she was sitting at a stop sign on a hot June day when a bright red Ferrari pulls up and wanna play. But she don't pay mind to that rich boy thing, but she just loves the way her slant stick thing. Maybe I'm crazy, dump them, run off the track. But good lord, that girl looks sexy in that cowboy Cadillac. Cowboy Cadillac is long and lean. If you float, then you'll find you a farmer's limousine. And if you get drunk, you can't sleep in the back of that long bed, flat, black, three quarter ton cowboy Cadillac. Let her unwind. Now mine's a 59 Chevy, hers a 61 Ford And that's the kind of thing that could get a man ignored But she said, don't worry babe, I know it's just a phase And when it comes to pickup trucks, I swing both ways Maybe I'm crazy, dump them, run off the track But good lord, that girl looks sexy in that cowboy Cadillac Cowboy Cadillac is long and lean It's the close thing you'll find to a farmer's limousine and if you get drunk, you can't sleep in the back of that long bed, flat, black, recorder ton cowboy Cadillac. Well, it's a long bed, flat, black, recorder ton cowboy Cadillac. Well, it's a long bed, flat, black, recorder ton cowboy Cadillac. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It is Sunday, the 22nd day of March, 2015, and you're now listening to Playtime with Sandra Radio. I'm your hostess, Sandra London of livinggrind.com, broadcasting for you live from the sunny beaches of Southern California. In connection with Blog Talk Radio, TuneIn Radio, iTunes Digital Podcast, and Naked Girls Radio. The song uh, you just heard, or... What you just heard at the top of the hour was Our Little Death by yours truly, Sandra London of livinggrind.com, and Cowboy Cadillac by Ray William Roldan, courtesy of nakedgirlsradio.com. I will be right back with you. I've uploaded a couple different cool audios and the like, um, but the call-in number is 858-815-2333. Once again, 858-815-2333. I'll be right back with you. This could be the first day of the rest of our lives, baby. Just come with me. We could be living it right and we could turn that page and never look back again together. 
This could be it in a way. Up. I'm the first man to say. I want you by my side. I want to have it any other way. I want to be getting to know ya. So pour it all out. Telling me y'all about you. I'll let you know what I'm about. I'm the fantasy that you have in your sleep. When you dream, that's me. Making you weak in your knees. I'll sweep you off your feet. Take you out into town. Make you feel like your world is upside down. Going crazy, falling in love with me. It's easy to see I'm falling in love with you. With that beautiful dress, you're looking so smooth. And you make a good boy when I break all the rules. Got all eyes on you when you walk in the room. And every man wants to be with you. So baby, tell me what I got to do. I could be the luckiest man alive. This be the first day of the rest of of our lives, baby, just come with me, we could be living and riding, we could turn that page, and never look back again, together, together, this could be the first day of the rest of our lives, baby, just come with me, we could be living and riding, we could turn that page, and never look back again, together, and if you would give me the chance, I could show you romance Let you see how a real man does that dance Dinner and a movie, not in my plans It's too plain, I would rather plain you to France I can show you high class, don't be walking right past me That look in your eyes says you want to harass me Come on by, I can't let this slide I ain't never seen a girl with such a beautiful smile Going crazy, falling in love with me It's easy to see I'm falling in love with you With that beautiful dress, you're looking so smooth And you make a good boy, wanna break all the rules Got all eyes on you when you walk in the room And every man wants to be with you So baby, tell me what I got to do I could be the luckiest man alive This could be the first day Of the rest of our lives Baby, just come with me We could be living and riding We could turn that page And never look back again Together this could be the first day of the rest of our lives, baby. Just come with me. We could be living and riding. We could turn that page and never look back again. Together, together. This could be the first day of the rest of our lives, baby. Just come with me. We could be living and riding. We could turn that page and never look back again together. This could be the... Petra is beyond. She is striking gold on the dance floor, all oiled up. It started out as gas, alas. Her drink slipped, modestly drenching her see-through night on the town gown while she had held court in the Lux Lounge way up high. Roman is amused, but tries to avoid making the sudden newfound pleasure known. Petra plays the fool. Continuing her sway, her shimmy, her excitable thrusts, swings, and struts, leading the way. All atop six-inch steel wheels. The damn thing just won't quit. No, really. Whose divine theory was made into a plan of action here anyway? This endless procession of treadmill. As if this hot powerhouse needed any workout. Petra reels in Roman's furtive gaze and grins a mile wide. Oops. Petra mouths as she slowly turns her VIP goblet onto its underbelly, painting her purposefully too small negligee with deep scarlet spirits. There will be whistles galore. Meanwhile, Roman and Petra alike are all wrapped up in her velvet. Petra widens her eyes. Oops. Roman mouths back, swallowing hard. Squirming in seductive falsetto, Petra makes a few pathetic attempts to dry off. The elements notwithstanding, the spirits make tiny teardrops at the mountaintops of her ridiculously erect nipples. 
Magic! Petra shouts over the circus, absorbed within them. Puffy to Perky, all in one go. Petra smiles, leaning in as Roman draws near, all the better. Bravo, my belle, Roman craves. Petra runs the back of her hand, absentmindedly over the front of Roman's pants. Petra pipes up, Aha! Voila! She feels good inside. A host draws near. Mademoiselle? Petra reaches out for Roman, cupping his ass cheek from behind. No, no, thank you, it's fine. We'll, we'll be going. My ride's here. Petra volunteers, winking at the staff. Enter Johnny Otto. There he is. I am Johnny's pet, Petra chuckles, as Roman grips her hand tightly to keep up. Johnny is jar. Party of two and a half, Johnny intimates with reserved discretion as a temporary chattel claim assignment. Where do we tell? Roman begins. Don't you worry. Petra rubs Roman's knee gingerly. Johnny's got everything under control. Petra is suddenly overwhelmed. Petra lays her head atop Roman's khakis, creating a very hard and humid situation. Three, two, one. Johnny has arrived. Uh, uh, Roman stutters. Roman is a bit of a mess. A stowaway ejects smoothly from the door, proffering an assortment of complimentary tissue. Roman flusters about, moderately embarrassed. He looks to the east of himself. Wow, how did it know where I live? Roman continues to peer out of the window. Did you leave your light on? We can read, you know, Petra cautions gently. Oh, Roman sighs. Um... Thanks, Roman bellows uncomfortably into the voice box which separates the chattel from the operator. Much obliged, Johnny affirms solemnly. Mm. Now, where were we? Petra purrs distractedly, prodding her new favorite thing. 322 King's Court, Utopia, Swartzen Bridge, recalls Johnny. Petra rolls her semi-permanent autumn green eyes. Johnny is at a full stop. Roman is released upon exit. Petra's dismount, however, is delayed. She pauses a moment, but all are silent. Ugh! Johnny! Petra squeals for precisely 20 seconds. Let me go! Roman looks on in suspended disbelief. You, my pet, have not arrived at your... Petra interjects, fucking bullshit, Johnny! Petra gathers Roman's coat and lifts it up from her lap towards the auto lights. Throwing it over her nipple-length chocolatey mane, she slips her hands into Roman's sleeves. You have changed, Johnny reports. Johnny is ajar. Standing momentarily akimbo on the sidewalk, Roman and Petra soon advance onwards towards Roman's high-rise. Looking back, Petra tugs her left boob ever so slightly while pointedly winking her right eye. I will put you in my pocket. So we'll start with the Romanian tune.
know, I guess, um... There's some dissonance for there. Me, for me, the best way to get over something or, I don't know, work through something <laughs> or get over a fear or a phobia is to just, like, jump right in. You know, just dive right in. Really? Abril, 
April. Assemblea. Assembly. Automobile. Automobile. Billion. Billion. Confort. Comfort. Courage. Courage. Coronel. Colonel. Emphasis. Emphasis. Espionaje. Espionage. Etc. Etc. Femenino. Feminine. Giraffe. Giraffe. Glaciar. Glacier. Gobernar. Gobierno. Governor. Government. Gravedad. Gravity. Huracán. Hurricane. Iraq. Iraq. Jamón. Ham. Hieroglifico. Hieroglyphics. Honron. Honron. Home run. Languaje. Language. Mensaje. Message. Millón. Million. Siniestro. Sinister. Tamal. Tamale. Vasco. Basque. Vainilla. Vanilla. Xenophobia. Xenophobia. Shilla. Guatemala.
myself reading that article, um, and the author of that article is credited in that recording in the beginning, and I plan to play that in like about 10 minutes or so. Um, but yeah, so that's my, that is the theme for this evening. Uh, the call-in number is 858-815-2333. Once again, 858-815-2333. Domo arigato.
a seizure. Your hands, my waist, a pleasant plop, aplomb, eternal warmth, then abandon, a hover, a tunnel, alien, and alone, all at the same time, colorblind, colorless, a heady omnipresence of gray, gray, gay, a coxest catastrophe, with no end, no sight, some savior, some witness, a messenger, a call for agency, familiarity, long pause, vile accusations, pressure, a lift, long pause, restraint, a face plant, long pause, I wail, I plead, mercy, release, an ear, an end, long pause, I dread the blur, the weight, fluid time, I seek connaissance. I could be more than me, possibly. One in one night, one in two nights, maybe less, maybe more. Let's see. A producer, if you will. Produce, if you must, or insist, but never, not ever, a director. A dwelling, per se, per chance, curtilage included. A box within a box, packaging born at sea, submission born in the air. This box squared, on ready-made display. This play, window lady, window girl, wonder woman. LMP, and okay, look at, talk at, written around, written without, stamped within, shrouded in code, valued at, one ninth, maybe two ninths, but never as one. Time of birth, zero four hundred hours seventeen. Time of death. Zero one hundred hours twenty. Rewind. A still life. Your last breath.
back. You're listening to Playtime with Sandra Radio, and I'm your hostess, Sandra London of LiveAndGrind.com. Uh, you just heard In Between Moments by Motem, M-O-T-E-M, uh, from Free Music Archive, courtesy of Free Music Archive, um, my erotic short, No Dispatch, and Met the Devil by Kyle Young. And without further ado, I will play... Um, my recording of an article that I found in National Geographic about driverless vehicles. Enjoy. Look both ways. With driverless cars zooming toward us, it's time to remember the first American automotive revolution by Clive Thompson in the Smithsonian, December 2014, also available at smithsonian.com. If you visit Mountain View, California, and you're lucky, you might see the strangest vehicle in America, a small, bubble-shaped car. Peer inside as it rolls by, and you'll find that the people inside aren't driving, because they can't. It's a car with no steering wheel, no brakes, and no gas pedal. It is one of Google's new self-driving cars, designed to navigate city streets all by itself, equipped with an array of sensors that can scan nearby traffic and pedestrians with laser-like precision, a GPS-brokered sense of the road, and a slew of algorithms frantically working to avoid collisions. These cars, Google hopes, are the future of driving. How would a robotic car transform the way we travel? They'd certainly change what you do during a ride. Passengers could read, nap, watch movies, or peck away on a laptop. New forms of car sharing might emerge, since a vehicle could drop you off and then zip itself over a few blocks to pick someone else up. Cars could be standalone couriers. Indeed, we might see many cars empty of any humans at all. It's a prospect straight out of Red Bradbury. by turns captivating and goosebump-inducing. And if it comes to pass, it'll be the apotheosis of how cars have utterly remolded the way cities work. Because when automobiles entered American life a century ago, their first trick was to start a war between humans and machines. They drove people off the streets. When you visit any city in America today, it's a sea of cars with pedestrians dodging between the speeding autos. It's almost hard to imagine now, but in the late 1890s, the situation was completely reversed. Pedestrians dominated the roads, and cars were the rare, tentative interlopers. Horse-drawn carriages and streetcars existed, but they were comparatively slow. So pedestrians ruled. The streets were absolutely black with people, as one observer described the view in the nation's capital. People strolled to and fro down the center of the avenue, pausing to buy snacks from vendors. They'd chat with friends or even manicure your nails, as one Chamber of Commerce Riley noted. And when they stepped off a sidewalk, they did it anywhere they pleased. They'd stride right into the street, casting little more than a glance around them, anywhere and at any angle as Peter D. Norton, a historian and author of Fighting Traffic, The Dawn of the Motor Age and the American City, tells me. Boys of 10, 12, or 14 would be selling newspapers, delivering telegrams, and running errands. For children, streets were playgrounds. At the turn of the century, motor vehicles were handmade, expensive toys of the rich, and widely regarded as rare and dangerous. When the first electric car emerged in Britain in the 19th century, the speed limit was set at four miles an hour, so a man could run ahead with a flag, warning citizens of the oncoming menace, notes Tom Vanderbilt, author of Traffic, Why We Drive the Way We Do and What It Says About Us. Things changed dramatically in 1908 when Henry Ford released the first Model T. Suddenly, a car was affordable, and a fast one, too. The Model T could zoom up to 45 miles an hour. Middle-class families scooped them up, mostly in cities, and as they began to race through the streets, they ran headlong into pedestrians with lethal results. By 1925, auto accidents accounted for two-thirds of the entire death toll in cities with populations over 25,000. An outcry arose, 
aimed squarely at drivers. The public regarded them as murderers. Walking in the streets, that was normal. Driving, now that was aberrant, a crazy new form of selfish behavior. Nation roused against motor killings, read the headline of a typical New York Times story, decrying the homicidal orgy of the motor car. The editorial went on to quote a New York City traffic court magistrate, Bruce Cobb, who exhorted, The slaughter cannot go on. The mangling and crushing cannot continue. Editorial cartoons routinely showed a car piloted by the Grim Reaper mowing down innocents. When Milwaukee held a Safety Week poster competition, citizens sent in lurid designs of car accident victims. The winner was a drawing of a horrified woman holding the bloody corpse of her child. Children killed while playing in the street were particularly mourned. They constituted one-third of all traffic deaths in 1925. Half of them were killed on their home blocks. During New York's 1922 Safety Week event, 10,000 children marched in the streets, 1,054 of them in a separate group, symbolizing the number killed in accidents the previous year. Drivers wrote their own letters to newspapers, pleading to be understood. We are not a bunch of murderers and cutthroats, one said. Yet they were indeed at the center of a fight that clearly can only have one winner. To whom should the streets belong? By the early 1920s, anti-car sentiment was so high that car makers and driver associations, who called themselves motordom, feared they would permanently lose the public. You could see the damage in car sales, which slumped by 12% between 1923 and 1924, after years of steady increase. Worse, anti-car legislation loomed. Citizens and politicians were agitating for speed governors to limit how fast cars could go. Gear them down to 15 or 20 miles per hour, as one letter writer urged. Charles Hayes, president of the Chicago Motor Club, fretted that cities would impose unbearable restrictions on cars. Hayes and his car company colleagues decided to fight back. It was time to target not the behavior of cars, but the behavior of pedestrians. Motordom would have to persuade city people that, as Hayes argued, the streets are made for vehicles to run upon and not for people to walk. If you got run over, it was your fault, not that of the motorist. Motordom began to mount a clever and witty public relations campaign. Their most brilliant stratagem, to popularize the term jaywalker. The term derived from jay, a derisive term for a country bumpkin, in the early 1920s, Jay Walker wasn't very well known. So, pro-car forces actively promoted it, producing cards for Boy Scouts to hand out, warning pedestrians to cross only at street corners. At a New York safety event, a man dressed like a hayseed was jokingly rear-ended over and over again by a Model T. In the 1922 Detroit Safety Week Parade, the Packard Motor Car Company produced a huge tombstone float, except, as Norton notes, and now blamed the jaywalker, not the driver. Erected to the memory of Mr. J. Walker, he stepped from the curb without looking. The use of jaywalker was a brilliant psychological ploy. What's the best way to convince urbanites not to wander in the streets? Make the behavior seem unsophisticated something you'd expect from Hicks fresh off the turnip truck. Car companies used a self-regarding snobbery of city dwellers against themselves, and the campaign worked. Only a few years later, in 1924, Jay Walker was so well-known it appeared in a dictionary, one who crosses the street without observing the traffic regulations for pedestrians. Meanwhile, newspapers were shifting allegiance to the automakers, in part. Norton and Vanderbilt argue because they were profiting heavily from car ads. So they too began blaming pedestrians for causing accidents. It is impossible for all classes of modern traffic to occupy the same right-of-way at the same time in safety, as the Providence Sunday Journal noted in a 1921 article called 
The Jaywalker Problem, reprinted from the Procar Motor magazine. In retrospect, you could have predicted that pedestrians were doomed. They were politically outmatched. There was a road lobby of asphalt users, but there was no lobby of pedestrians, Vanderbilt says. And cars were a genuinely useful technology. As pedestrians, Americans may have feared their dangers, but as drivers, they loved the mobility. By the early 30s, the war was over. Even after, the street would be monopolized by motor vehicles. Norton tells me, most of the children would be gone. Those who were still there would be on the sidewalks. By the 1960s, cars had become so dominant that when civil engineers made the first computer models to study how traffic flowed, they didn't even bother to include pedestrians. The triumph of the automobile changed the shape of America, as environmentalists ruefully pointed out. Cars allowed the suburbs to explode, and big suburbs allowed for energy-hungry monster homes. Even in mid-century, critics could see this coming, too. When the American people, through their Congress, voted for a $26 billion highway program, the most charitable thing to assume is that they hadn't the faintest notion of what they were doing. Lewis Mumford wrote, sadly, in 1958. This is precisely what makes modern critics nervous about self-driving cars. Will they, too, create radically new driving patterns and dangerous changes to society? Norton sees two roads forward, one good and one dreadful. If we're lucky, self-driving cars could reduce overall driving by allowing super-efficient ride-sharing. Imagine a system that's half zip car and half taxi service, where you buy access to a private fleet of vehicles that work out sharing on the fly. Stoplights could become obsolete. Some computer models suggest that self-driving cars could navigate intersections simply by weaving around each other, reducing emissions from idling. Maybe we could cross the street wherever we wanted, because the cars would stop and flow around us. But there's a dystopian view, too. Self-driving cars, Norton warns, could usher in an explosion of driving and even more far-flung exurbs. If you can now work on your laptop while commuting, why not live even farther away? That scares me, he says. We might pave the whole country that way. But Vanderbilt isn't as worried. The computer models I've seen suggest we'd drive less, he says and he suspects most people have an upper limit on how much time they're willing to commute, even if they're not driving. I don't envision two-hour commutes. Auto debts would likely shrink dramatically. Google's prototype self-driving cars have been on the road for five years, and Google says haven't had a single accident under computer control. But when the rare accidents do occur, it'll create as with 100 years ago, a big public debate about who's to blame. The passengers, who weren't piloting the car. The car maker, who wrote the algorithms. A cloudy day that temporarily occluded the car's GPS. And car makers may again need to mount a big public relations campaign, this time to convince us to trust the cars. Would you put your face in a self-driving robot to stop in time when your children step into the street against the light? The cars may change, but the détente between them and us may always be uneasy. The end. That was Look Both Ways by Clive Thompson for Smithsonian.com and the magazine Smithsonian December 2014 issue. Hello, all you sexy Naked Girls radio listeners. Have yourself a naked day and make it a naughty night with me, Sandra London, on Playtime with Sandra every Sunday night. 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 10 p.m. Central, 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now that's better, baby. Why don't we sing a song to help pass the time? Hmm? 
Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Merrily, 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 life is down the stream. Merrily, 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 merrily. Amor é já 